You're listening to episode 41. Today, I talk with James Jimmy Turner about his new book called Determined. If you're a physician, you need this book. Go to Amazon. Trust me. If you're feeling crispy around the edges like we all are, Dr. Turner does an excellent job of articulating how we're feeling and offering solutions to help. And if you're a surgeon and you're miserable in clinic, I want you to join me next week. The webinar, Stop Hating Clinic. Go to bosssurgery.com to register. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. And I have been terribly excited about this guest for quite some time. Dr. Jimmy Turner, um, I've known for a couple of years now, and he's been doing some phenomenal things. You know, he was a superstar even before we you know, had end up in the same coaching class, but he was already a significant achiever and as the physician philosopher. And he then transitioned um, a lot of his teachings into coaching. And that's where we, our paths crossed. And he's done some really phenomenal things, but mostly I wanted to have him tell us a story, but also talk about his best-selling book, Determined. And it's a really fantastic book. And so I really can't wait to talk about this. So Dr. Turner, welcome to the Boss Podcast. Thanks for having me, Dr. Vertries. Couldn't be more excited to be here. I'm very interested in the story. And I'm sure it's just, it's been a fascinating to watch your story. So take us a little bit through, you know, how you became the physician philosopher and then how it blossomed from there. Yeah. So the, the physician philosopher was formed in November of 2017. Uh, so gosh, yeah. Coming up on like, what is that? Five years? Yeah. So initially I came out of training. So I'm an anesthesiologist. I'm an academic anesthesiologist and uh, did a fellowship in regional anesthesia. So I do nerve blocks and thoracic epidurals and all that stuff. And six months out of training, um, you know, I had been developing this knowledge in personal finance and it had become pretty clear to me that despite all of the good stuff that was out there in the personal finance realm for doctors, there was still kind of a gap. And the gap was that people weren't really relating financial independence to people's burnout. And uh, so even early on, like I was already kind of talking about that idea, but you know, one of the early taglines was, you know, fighting, you know, burnout with financial independence. And the idea was natural because most people who are burned out, they're like, Oh, you know, like, I just want to make a change. I don't like my job. I want to, you know, pivot in my career. And if I just had enough financial freedom, then I could walk away from it all. It's the ultimate Trump card, right? Like you can just lay it down and like, it is what it is. No one can do anything about it. And, uh, and so, yeah, I started teaching people about personal finance and a couple of years into that, uh, as irony would have it, I started burning out myself. Um, and I realized that despite the financial freedom I'd created in my business, uh, at that time I, I could have, you know, walked away from medicine and with the trajectory my business was taking, I was, you know, reliably assured that I, I could make this a full-time thing and, and just retire from medicine if I wanted to. I, I felt like I had enough financial independence for my business that, uh, that I could walk away and it didn't solve my burnout. And, uh, and so I started realizing that there was more to this than the, just the financial piece. And so I started branching into coaching. I became a client, uh, really changed my life and my perspective on how I view things. And I've always loved psychology and philosophy. That's why it's called the physician philosopher. I was a philosophy major in undergrad. And, uh, and so, yeah, I started marrying all those topics and, and now teach people about money and mindset as ways to create the freedom they need in their life to create a life they actually love and to practice medicine because they want to, not because they have to. 
Um, and yeah, it, it was interesting going through that journey myself and becoming burned out uh, in the midst of that, despite trying to help other people not do the same thing. Yeah, no, take me through this, this idea of burnout, because, you know, I think a lot of times we're not exactly sure, like, what does burnout mean and what did it mean to you? Yeah, so, I mean, classically, burnout's described by um, Frudenberger is his name, interesting name. And, uh, you know, it, it has three components, right? So the emotional exhaustion, which I think most people would probably more aptly describe as apathy. Like they just, you know, get to the point where like, you know, I just have had enough. I just, I can't do it anymore. I, I don't have any control. So I just, instead of letting this beat me down, I'm just going to become apathetic. Uh, the second thing is depersonalization. So you start treating patients or colleagues, um, not, not like inanimate objects, but, you know, they, they've lost that humanity that they once had. Um, and so we see this when, you know, physicians start joking about their, their morbid sense of humor, which we all kind of do in order to compartmentalize things and kind of deal with the terrible things we see in medicine. Or, you know, maybe you just, you just don't care as much about the interaction you have with the colleague at work. Um, and then the last thing, which I always find the most interesting, I talk about the least in the book, but to me, it's fascinating is lack of accomplishment. You have these people that spent 10, 20, 30 years becoming what they've become. They're like the best physicians and like the cream of the crop in the world at what they do. Like, and, and, and you know, if you're an academics, that might mean you've published papers, you great teacher, you're a great clinician in private practice. Like you're one of the best surgeons in your area, maybe your state, maybe the country. And you feel like you haven't accomplished anything. Like you went through all of these years of training and you, and like, you don't feel like you've done anything. And so that's the third component of, of classic burnout. And, um, and it's interesting because 20 to 60% of doctors do struggle with imposter syndrome. And so that, that last piece is actually really prevalent. Um, but for me, what I started to notice was the emotional exhaustion and the depersonalization uh, in my own journey. I started realizing like, I just, I felt like I couldn't make any progress. Like I, I didn't have any control over my schedule, over my time. When I got home with my kids, you know, going to t-ball games and gymnastics practices, um, I couldn't control what cases I got assigned. Uh, and so for me, it was that lack of autonomy that led to that kind of apathetic feeling. And so what did you do when you started recognizing these, these symptoms in yourself? Was it something that you noticed or, or did you hear other people saying it? And that's how you noticed it. How did you find out? Oh man. So, so two different questions, right? So one is how did I notice, uh, the way that I noticed was that I had a panic attack on a golf course. Um, and so the group was teeing the ball behind us and, uh, I went into like full fledged, like fight or flight. I've, I've never had a panic attack in my life. I'm actually I'm an anesthesiologist, so I'm, I'm pretty cool, calm, and collected at baseline in tough situations. I talk a lot in person, but when things get tough, I actually talk very little and just get very direct. And um, and that's always served me well in my career. But like I was like like it's like this small white circular object like didn't even hit me, and like I went into like my heart was in my throat. I was you know having palpitations. I had this massive tremor. I couldn't control my emotions. And so lo and behold, I ended up realizing after the fact that like, this was actually uh, the culmination of a lot of symptoms I've been experiencing. I got di diagnosed with Graves disease and I was so burned out at the time that I was actually excited that I got diagnosed with Graves disease. Cause like, finally I have an answer for like why I'm angry all the time. Like why I, I just feel apathetic. I don't have any control. Like why I'm so mad about my job and my situation. And, uh, and then I got you thyroid after my endocrinologist and my PCP, both, both amazing uh, physicians. They, um, <laughs> they got me your thyroid and it didn't go away. Mm -hmm. My panic attack went away. Like my sweating, like I was in a sauna when other people weren't went away. My tremor got better. Uh, but my burnout did not go away at all. 
And, um, and so I started to notice obviously that that was an issue. Um, and it started affecting my home life. It started affecting my job satisfaction. Um, and yeah, it, it was, it was really a pretty clear and defining moment for me, uh, once the Graves disease was fixed. Um, and so that's, that's how I noticed though. And so now that you're, so you're youth thyroid and, you know, what did you do when you noticed it? Like, what were the steps that you took? Um, once you realized it may not be a medical diagnosis, it, this may actually be something, something different. Yeah. So I did what everybody does. I tried to change my circumstance. Um, so I, I went part-time, I tried to uh, double down on my business and make my business grow, which I did. Um, and then I tried to change my schedule. I tried to, um, pull away from work because I didn't really feel like I belonged. I didn't feel like I, I was valued at my job. And, uh, I got passed up for some leadership positions. So I was like, fine, like, you know, if there's this opportunity is not going to open up in my department, I'm going to find my value somewhere else. And so, you know, I really kind of pulled into my tortoise shell in a lot of ways and, and sought my belonging and my sense of autonomy outside of the hospital. Um, which was, you know, we're both coaches. So, you know, we, I, I changed my circumstance and it didn't change anything. Um, and that's, that's often why people come to me and, you know, say, Hey, I need your help. I'm burned out. I've tried these things. I've tried going part-time. I tried building a side gig. I tried talking to my boss. I tried all these things and nothing works. I'm still burned out. Same thing happened to me. And so that's what I tried initially. And then when I started tapping into kind of the mindset work of this and stopped labeling myself as a victim and decided that I was finally going to take control of my life and to realize that everything that I was doing was a choice, uh, it, it gave me the freedom that I was looking for. Um, the freedom to be happy both at work and at home. And, you know, I, I like that your personal story mirrors so much of the, that we've seen, you know, there was the, the fire movement for a long time and the side gigs and, you know, uh, everyone seems to be struggling with this, this identity as a doctor is that, um, and this is, I think why your book is so helpful is articulating a lot of the things that we're feeling right now, which is we're all seeking something else because where we're at seems to be a little intolerable. And, you know, I don't think that we really can articulate it in ways um, until, I mean, you have this book that comes along and then I'm reading this going, this is, this is what's been missing. This, this, un, this level of understanding of not just the personal side of it and the global side. And I know you've heard too, like the, the biggest criticism of coaching is like, oh, you just think I have to change and maybe the system is wrong. And yeah, <laughs> your book did a great job of explaining that it's, it's actually both. And so why don't you take us through a little bit about um, where the concept of this book came from and, and, you know, take us through that process. Yeah. So, so the book came from two different things. Um, one was the systemic phenomenon that I was noticing um, working in medicine, coaching other doctors that were working in other hospitals and organizations, seeing the same things over and over and over. Um, and actually, I ran into a book, also a fantastic book called Drive by Daniel H. Pink. And the purpose of that book is named Drive, right? So it's about intrinsic motivation. And so he introduced me to self-determination theory. And um, I latched onto, obviously, what burnout was. I latched onto the reasons that people were experiencing burnout. But I didn't really have a framework, per se, in order to explain, like, what is the opposite? Like, if this is burnout, this is the problem. This is what it looks like when it's broken. What does it look like when things are well? when things aren't disease, there aren't systemic or systematic problems. And Edward DC and Richard Ryan's self-determination theory, which has been around for 20, 
25 years. I think it's 2003, maybe earlier than that. Um, and, uh, you know, really describe this. And so there's three things we all need in order to love our job, to be intrinsically motivated, to be engaged at work, to love what we do. And they are autonomy, control at your job, both personally and professionally, a sense of belonging. In other words, you're, you feel valued at what you do. You feel attached to a deeper purpose. And then confidence. We need to be good at what we do. But if you have the autonomy, belonging, and confidence at your workplace, you will love what you do, period. End of, end of the story. And like it is the polar opposite of the emotional exhaustion that comes from a lack of autonomy, that depersonalization that comes from a lack of belonging, and the lack of accomplishment that comes from that reduced clinical confidence we have when we have imposter syndrome. And so when I realized that, I was like, oh my gosh, like this explains the other side of the, the phenomenon when things are going really, really well. How can we help doctors, empower doctors to find that autonomy, that sense of belonging and the perceived competence? Because interestingly enough, it isn't actually how competent you are. It's how good you think you are. Um, and so a lot of that comes through, you know, taking ownership of your story and becoming the hero of it. And the false dichotomy that people make that I talk about in that book is, you know, and, and the terms that people use to describe this are moral injury versus burnout. And people get all sorts of bent out of shape about this. And I, and I think that's great. They, they get bent out of shape because they, they want it to be better for doctors. They want it to be better for nurses and other medical professionals that are working in the healthcare system. But the way that it's been shaped in our current social media cancel culture is that it's one or the other. Like it's either moral injury or burnout. And if you're on the other side, like you've got it wrong. And when I ran into this work, it, it became immediately clear to me that this is a false dichotomy. It's what you call it in philosophy when someone has a logical error in their way of thinking, right? So it's not an either or, it's a both and. There is a systemic phenomenon called moral injury that's caused by our failures in the medical system that are not caused by doctors. They're caused by the administrators, the bureaucrats, the insurance companies, the way the system is structured. And that moral injury leads to the individual phenomenon of burnout in doctors. And so it's a both and. And when I realized that, uh, it really kind of connected the dots for me. You know, I, I'd been working on helping doctors reclaim autonomy through personal finance and mindset. But when I ran across Edward DC and Richard Ryan's work, um, it really kind of just crystallized everything I'd been thinking about for the last three years. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that's the key is crystallizing and trying to figure out not just what's wrong, because I think a lot of us are walking around feeling the discomfort and, you know, first wondering, is it us? And then realizing, oh, no, no, it's definitely the system. But, you know, trying to find what we're actually looking for is, you know, I think the difference. And I think that you outlined a lot of the, the main problems that we're having is, you know, the, the corporate short-term gains thing. So take us through a little bit of what uh, you described as, you know, what are the big problems, like big, big problems in uh, medicine are right now? Yeah. So when, when you look at those two paradigms, if you will, on either end of the spectrum, the, the self-determined physician, which obviously is why the book is called Determined, um, and then the burned out doctor on the other end, you can kind of find at the top of that really big picture, two different kinds of systems. So the first is the one that puts profit first. And when we put profit first, we're going to focus on things that, and by we, I mean, administrators, organizations are going to focus on things that are not necessarily concerned with the autonomy, belonging, or competence of an individual physician physician, they are going to be focused on things they can measure, metrics. And administrators love metrics. That's why they have that, that saying, no margin, no mission, right? If you can't measure it, you can't change it. And so they focus on the margin and they make decisions like, oh, well, if, if we just cut this expense or we just add this one thing, we can change the, the revenue and the profit of our healthcare system. 
And they don't realize or think about the downstream effects on the individual medical professional on the front line. And so that is a very different paradigm than one in which you focus on the people first and you send things through this framework, the self-determination framework. And you say, does this decision help our medical professionals, our doctors become more autonomous, feel like they're valued and, or help them be good or good or better at their job? And if the answer is yes, you do it. And if the answer is no, you don't. And you, you do that because you want to put your people first, because we all know, and the literature supports this, right? That burnout costs massive amounts of money in our healthcare system. It's $5 billion a year, $7,600 per physician. And the most common reason that this costs healthcare systems money, the reason, like the way they measure these in studies is by turnover. And the reason people leave jobs is because they don't feel valued. They don't feel like they have control. And so when you start measuring this and you're like, oh, well, you know, if you're looking at the margin and you're trying to make money and those decisions are leading to burned out doctors who then in turn leave, you actually lose money. You lose lots and lots and lots of money. And so you lose the very thing you were trying to gain in the first place, um, but it's an indirect measurement. So they, they, for some reason, don't measure it, can't see it, even though there's studies that have done this for them. Um, and so this, the self-determined model or the people first model urges leaders to put people first, knowing that they are their best investment and that when they are happy, when they are engaged, they will stay. That will cost them lower turnover costs. They will be more engaged at their work, more fulfilled. They'll take better care of patients. And ironically, it will actually make your hospital more money. Yes. And I think there was that Cleveland Clinic study that showed that um, about how, you know, coaching and, you know, supporting the physicians, how can actually gain retention and gain the, the, system a lot of money, or at least avoid a substantial loss. And yeah. two concepts that, that you had in the book um, that also kind of supports, you know, two podcasts that we've had is, you know, the admin is not the enemy where Dr. Shoup talks about, you know, when you hear her talk, I mean, you're like, gosh, if, if all of our leaders like her, we are in good shape. But you mentioned in the book, and I think it's true, is that the more levels that we have in between the doctor and the administrator, then there's that, that distance that uh, takes away some of the solutions that we have because they're not seeing the people day to day. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I love, I love this experiment. Right. Um, and, you know, I think, I think it's the best example and it's the one that I give in the book because it, it's, it's the best example that I've had. Uh, but, you know, so Milgram had this experiment where basically he shocked people. And so people came to the room and, uh, and they didn't realize this, but it was a sham study. So like you'd reach in and like you'd pull uh, an assignment from the hat and like, you didn't know, but like you'd, you'd walk in and basically you got paid 20 bucks in today's money. You got paid 20 bucks to pull a name from a hat and you are either going to be the person that was going to shock somebody. So be the administrator, or you're going to be the person getting shocked. So you're the person that was being studied. And, uh, and so basically the person got shocked every time that they didn't recall a word they were supposed to remember. And your job as the administrator, it was a sham study. So all of the slips in the hat, by the way, were the administrator. The person that was being studied was an actor. And, uh, and so there's two different things that they looked at. And the reason that they were looking at the studies, because they wanted to know how were normal German citizens complicit with genocide during the World War, which is a fascinating question, right? Like these are normal, like otherwise normal people who became complicit in one of the worst atrocities in human history. And so how did that happen? And so what they did is they sat them down. They had the switchboard in front of them. On the left was, you know, mild shocks. And then, it, and they were labeled mild, moderate, severe, and then XXX was a lethal shock. And they wanted to know how many people would complete the study if an authoritarian figure was, was next to them, basically urging them to continue. 
And um, they told him like, hey, we can't flip the levers, levers for you. You can leave at any point. But they would sit there and unless they basically put up a fight like more than four times, um, they would be told something like, you must continue. The research must go on. Keep going, right? By this person wearing a white coat, authoritarian you know, researcher behind you. And some ridiculous number of people would go all the way to the XXX, like over 50% of the people. It was like 60% if they can remember you. Yeah. For 20, for $20, they found out that they would murder somebody if an authoritarian figure told them to do so. Yeah. And, and uh, 20 bucks too. Yes. 20 bucks. So, was, you know, and it was obviously less back then, but the, you know, if you, if you take for, you know, the inflation, what it's worth today is $20. So these normal people went in and for $20 realized they would murder somebody in the right situation. And so the lesson from that first part of the experiment is that good people and bad cultures will do bad things. It's in our human nature when authoritarian figures tell us to do. So when you look at doctors who are being told constantly to, you know, push people through or to, you know, ignore certain things that like they feel aren't really right, they, they will potentially do the wrong thing. The more interesting point of this study, which is what you're alluding to, is they had a variation where they had three different ways. They had someone in the room with a shock plate. They basically had to take the person's hand, put it on the plates, so make physical contact, eye contact with this person. And then go sit back down and administer the test. They could see, they could hear them get shocked. They could see them scream. They could hear them scream. And a, a much lower number of people completed this study, like in terms of going to the XXX, a lethal voltage. They then took them in a different room where they could see and hear them, but they didn't have to physically touch them. The number went up. And then they finally, in the last iteration, they put them in a completely separate room where they could only hear them. They couldn't see them. They didn't touch them. They could just hear the screams. And the number continued to go up. And so what this study basically showed is that the further distance we are from the people that we're harming, the more harm we can do. And so I agree with Dr. Shoup that administrators aren't intrinsically evil. They're not bad people. And a lot of the people on the front lines are like, oh, like administrators are terrible. And like, they, they just see me as a cog in the wheel or a number on a balance sheet. I don't think that that's true. I think these are good people trying to do their best but they're so distanced from the people in the trenches that are actually taking care of real human beings as patients that they don't realize the decisions that they're making, how badly they harm us. Right. And so, so Milgram's experiment would show that. And I think that what medicine right now is a walking example of that being true in real life too. Yeah, absolutely. Cause they're just not seeing the things and we're not seeing the administrators too. I thought that you also had, you know, this goes both ways too, is that yeah. they're trying to make decisions, don't understand us. And, you know, we are using these, these big men, you know, behind the curtain um, as the, the explanation for all of our woes. Uh, I thought that great examples on both sides. Yeah. And, and, you know, Simon Sinek talks about that. Um, I want to say it's in leaders eat last, but the idea is that when, when you have the person at the top of the organization, they have to rely on middle management. And nowadays, it's not just like middle management. It's like middle managements that are then talking to other middle managers that then interact with you on the front line. And so the information that they get that's filtered up to the leaders and organizations is only as good as the middle managers that they're working with. And so you know, it's a, it's a bi-directional thing where the information from the CEO or whoever is leading the hospital and the decisions they make are harming the people on the front line. They're not, it's not, the communication is not really there. And the people on the front line are telling their, you know, their chair, who's then telling a, you know, a vice president of the hospital, who's then telling the CEO, it's like a game of telephone. And so, you know, this, this lack of communication and the distance between the two harms both people, including the CEO too. Right. And, you know, on a, like um, an everyday level too, um, 
I lived in the DC area for 17 years. You know, there's, you'll, you'll encounter someone that you run into like a traffic altercation with, and you'll never see him again. And so you feel like very empowered to just do whatever, flip them off and things like that. But in a small town, you're not gonna do that. Cause that could be someone you go to church with, or, you know, your kid's teacher or who knows what. And, and so I think that we're certainly, um, easier to get along with when we know the people that we're around and we're also, you know, visible to like our actions are visible to who's around too. So that I always took that example home for me of, of realizing that I'm fortunate enough to be in a small hospital system. So I can walk down to this, the CMO's office. And um, I think that's helped me understand a lot of the administration is, is recognizing their thought process and they really are trying to do their yep. best. And there's a lot of things that they're struggling with that we don't understand. And uh, so I do think that the more that we're able to understand them, the better that we're going to you know, survive in all of this. Yeah, completely, completely agree. And Dr. Cho, who um, we just had a podcast uh, episode of the, the other day, was talking about like what we need in our leaders. You know, we need to know that they that we can trust them, that they're out for our best interest, um, and that they have the ability and skills to do that. And the more separated you are from that, you just have no idea. Yeah, I mean, you you need at a very basic level for leaders to protect you. That is why they're leading. And so, you know, there, there's a reason why there's, you know, the expression that people don't leave bad jobs, they leave bad bosses. Mm-hmm. And when bosses refuse to protect you or to value you, that is when people leave. But when they do those things and they do them well, people will carry the cross for that person. They will, they will go to bat. They will do everything that they can to appease that person, to protect them, to, you know, do the very best work that they can and accomplish all of that leader's goals if they will just provide that protection uh, and value. I completely agree. Uh, So leaving like the system-based level, you know, a lot of us say like, okay, yeah, I get it. You know, I see some of the problems here and this feels a little overwhelming for me. Um, What can they do on an individual level? What What are some of the things that you would offer? Yeah. So I think the first thing is, um, you know, and, and it's, it's hard. I would encourage you to read the book, uh, to get the, the full, the full version of this. Um, but yeah, it, it's challenging because when you've told yourself that story that we've been talking about for so long, that the system is broken and it's not me and it's an either or situation. So either the system's broken or I'm broken and you realize like, Oh no, this is a both. And like the system can be broken and what the system's doing to you can also cause you to be a victim. And you decide at some point not to be the victim. You decide that you're not going to let someone else control you because you are an autonomous human being who gets to decide what you want to do with your life. Um, And you decide not to be helpless, um, you know, which we talk about, you know, in the book as well. And um, you have the ability to shape your future. And and that's going to, that's going to require tools. It's going to require tools from, you know, the three things we, we, we teach clients are, you know, about their mindset, their money, and then, uh, you know, basically finding balance, their, their, their time. And you have control over all three of those things. And it's interesting because there are countless examples, and I give tons of them in the book, from Nelson Mandela to Rosa Parks to Reuben Hurricane Carter, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, these people that refused to be a victim in terrible situations. You're talking about people that got put in jail for triple homicides that they didn't commit for 20 years, people that got put in jail for racism, and they refused to let bitterness consume them and instead decided to be the hero of their story. And so if people like that can exist in our world, then certainly doctors who exist in a broken system can refuse to be the victim 
and instead decide to be the hero of their story. It just takes work and you know lots of iteration and practice. Exactly. What would you suggest? Like, so someone is now realizing that you know I thought all my symptoms of you know fatigue and you know emotional exhaustion and you know the aches and pains that I don't understand and I can't sleep. You know, that, what would be your advice to that person who's now just starting to discover I have to do something? What would you? What would that something be? Yeah. So, so you know, there's a lot of internal you know thought work that goes into this, right? So. It's really interesting to me that people fight coaching, um, but I lay this out in the very introduction of the book that, that coaching was what changed things for me. And this, I always find this interesting that people fight this. And the reason why is because you know this is true. I don't even have to convince you of it, right? So if you're married, right? Or you're in a committed relationship, your partner, your kids, I guarantee you, you've tried to convince them of something at some point in your life that you know is right. It's best for them. You've told them a thousand times. And then someone comes in from an outside perspective and points out the same exact thing in a slightly different way. And all of a sudden it clicks, right? And you're like, I've been trying to tell you this for like four years, you know, <laughs> like we've all seen that in our lives. Like I've got three kids, I'm married. I've absolutely seen it countless times. And, and the reason why is because human beings by nature require an outside objective third-party person to point things out to us because we often are so intimately involved in our situation that we can't see it ourselves. And so that outside perspective is monumentally important in helping people figure that out. And the book actually walks you through several ways to do that. Uh, and it points out ways that I've seen clients, you know, in the physician space kind of struggle. Doctors don't like to fail. We like to blame ourselves for everything, right? We overgeneralize any failure into who and what we are instead of letting it just be a single moment in our life where something bad happened or we made a mistake or, or what have you. And if you let these individual insults happen and then compound on each other, then inevitably leads to this, you know, emotional exhaustion and this, this just, you know, lack of belonging, not, not only externally, but internally, like you start to judge yourself as the kind of doctor or mom or dad, or, you know, partner that you are. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's work that you can't, in my opinion, do by yourself very effectively. It takes an extreme amount of work. And I, and I guess you probably could do it, but, but it would take months and months and months or years and years and years. Um, and so why not seek help from someone else to help you sort through those things um, and, and help you work on what's you know, most needed in your life right now? Because for me and for you, like th those issues that we're working on are going to be completely different. I might be working on like dealing with failure. Like every time I fail, like I just make it own me and who I am and what I am. And, you know, my intrinsic self-worth is attacked by that. For you, you might be like dealing with completely different things in that spectrum, right? You might be dealing with, you know, how to deal with shame and like, you know, what you should or shouldn't do um, and, and what that means about you as a person. And so the only way you can really figure out a, what you need to work on and make the diagnosis, you can actually, you know, put proper treatment in place like you do in medicine is to talk to somebody and help them, let them help you figure out what that diagnosis is. Absolutely. And, you know, it it's so interesting to realize that we are never even really taught this whole idea of thoughts and emotions driving anything. You know, we think this just, and this is what you hear when you reach out and ask for people, they'll give you a lot of actions to do. They'll offer you advice, but you know, we never really question a lot of these thoughts that we have. And, you know, all these thoughts that build up to these internalized beliefs to simple things like, you know, why do we work Monday through Friday? Why do we have to work Monday through Friday? Why, what's the special about that? You know, and, and why is part-time seem, you know, like for a surgeon is like maybe 40 hours and, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, I find it interesting. So, yeah, like the average doctor works 59.6 hours a week and 19.6 or so of that is charting and 40 hours of it is actual work, um, you know, and, and it's interesting because we do just take these um, paradigms and we're just like, yeah, oh, yeah, that's just true. Like your doctor's just supposed to work 60 hours a week. And you're like, actually, you know, in Europe, they work like 30 or 40 hours a week and that's normal over there. Yeah. Right. Like, like this is just something you've accepted. Mm-hmm. And you have these thoughts about them that they're going to make you a better doctor. Like if you work a hundred hours a week during training, like that's going to make you a, a better physician. And it's like, actually, you could probably have a more efficient training paradigm where we trained you better and didn't make you do a bunch of scut work during that training that wouldn't destroy you for five years while you're becoming a surgeon. Right. <laughs> and, um, and so like, it doesn't have to be this way, but we, we've just continually let it be that way. And, and I think that what is really helpful in this space actually is, is looking outside of medicine. So I love, I love reading business books and psychology books, and I'm not talking about like textbooks, like books written by authors that are fun to read outside of this space. And the reason why is because medicine is so historical. It's so patriarchal. It's so traditional in the way that we do things. And we do them just because it's the way it always has been done that, you know, we get stuck in our own space. And it's like, you do realize that like, 20 or 30 years ago, they were doing different things in like big businesses. And those big businesses have been highly successful. And we don't have to keep flogging ourselves doing these things the way that we've always done them. Mm-hmm. Like that idea is so foreign in medicine. Like, what do you mean we can do things differently than we've always done them? Like, how could it be? You know, it's, it's just mind boggling to me. Well, I mean, this is where you come in. This is where I come in and or all the people that are sharing the stories of people, you know, we're challenging people's self-concepts and, you know, the the system-based concepts and all these internalized beliefs of, of saying you can actually do all of these things and it's actually okay. There's yeah. nothing gone wrong. You don't have to choose, right? <laughs> like, like, like the, I think that's the thing that bothers me the most is people are like, oh, I have to choose to either be a good doctor. And for me, I probably should have said this in my story. For me, the penultimate moment was when I, like, I got to the point where I refused to choose between being a good husband, a good dad, and a good doctor. I wanted to be good at all three of those things. And I have, I think I have the ability and the bandwidth to do all three of those things extremely well. Mm-hmm. And so, but they're said in that order for a reason, right? My wife is my top priority. My kids are a very close second and my job's a very distant third. And so when my job started threatening the other two priorities, I'm sorry, like medicine's going to take the back seat. You know, and if, and if you think that I'm a bad doctor for doing that, because I've had people say that to me, interestingly, um, I'd have to question what your top two priorities are, right? Like, what does that say about you as a partner or as a parent? Um, and, and if that offends you, maybe you've got some work to do, right? Maybe you don't, maybe, maybe your career is your top priority. I don't know. But for me, like I refused to be in this like situation where I had to choose between the three because I found a situation and my current situation that I'm in, I don't have to choose anymore. I can be good at all three of those things. So you know, that is kind of another one of those either or dilemmas. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, and maybe this is just because of the circles that I'm in, you know, it always is, there's, there's this perception that guys don't struggle with mm. worrying about home life. And, you know, and I, I've always thought that that, you know, felt really false. And I really love the fact that you're so transparent about, you know, your own struggles with trying to be a good father and a good husband and a good doctor and realizing that none of us have the exact answer for that. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, oh man, this be a podcast in and of itself. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, parenting has and continues to be the hardest thing I've ever done. And, um, I care very deeply about my children 
I care very deeply about their direction, where they're going in their life, what they want, how I can help them accomplish their goals. And um, despite all of that, you know, I really do think uh, Zig Ziglar had it right when he said that, you know, the way that children spell love is T-I-M-E. Like they, they don't care about my, like my massive amounts of wisdom or talents or, you know, my abilities to throw a ball very far or to catch them when they're running to me or dancing with them like I did at a brewery today. Like they don't care about any of that. They care about my availability. And for me as a dad, just kind of being there and, and recognizing that that's what they want for me. Um, like I, I can't, like, there's no other way to make up for that. Like, I just need to be available. I need to be home. I need to be at the t-ball games. I need to be at the gymnastics practice or, you know, my little girl's learning tumbling right now. She likes to flip all over the place, you know? And so like, they just want me to be there and be involved and be intent, put my phone down. Um, but yeah, that, that is extremely hard. Um, yeah. And, and I'll say like, as a guy, like I have an innate intrinsic need to provide. Um, and that, that often pulls me in different directions than being available for my kids. You know, so when my business calls or like, you know, medicine calls, um, yeah, there's this, this pull. And, and, and I think that probably exists for all physicians to like go to that and to, to provide for your family as, as the breadwinner, most physicians are. And, um, and so for me, like, yeah, that's, that's been, that's been a huge challenge, but it's, it's one that I'm happy to share because I, I don't think just in general, I don't think guys talk enough about their feelings, despite the fact that you and I, uh, as coaches, like, you know, and Douglas Lyles research on, you know, the motivational tribe would support this, that everything that we do in life is driven by our feelings. And so you can either decide to talk about them, uh, and recognize that they're the reason that you do everything that you do in your life, or you're just constantly going to be chasing after stuff and not realizing why. I completely agree. And, you know, I do think that there's uh, so many examples of people who are struggling and still doing it and that no one's doing it perfectly. And, you know, I think that the main concept of, of us questioning whether we're doing it right is actually a sure sign that we're actually doing it right. Oh yeah. I couldn't, couldn't agree more. <laughs> and, but I'm still shocked like at the whole societal, you know, internalized beliefs that, you know, we can't do it all. And I still have people that come in through nothing wrong with PAs or anything like that, or people that are in um, med school saying, you can't be a surgeon and a mother. And mm. you can't, and I was like, who says that? And it's like, but by the way, we have like a, a Facebook group of over 3,000 3, women that says otherwise, but yeah. it's, it's amazing that there's still all of these offered thoughts and, you know, would someone explain to me or, or someone offer to me about the, the difference between male and, and female, I said, you know, I think really what it is, is that we're offered thoughts all the time. If you understand the thought model, you know, society offers men and women different thoughts that we then have different feelings about and run with. Um, and so like we borrow these, these thoughts that we have about ourselves and the, and the world from society and, you know, realizing that those can be questioned too, I think is, is not just internal work, but the difference with working with society. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and when you start realizing, and, and that's the reason why I love thought downloads, right? So I talk about that in the book and I talk about the, you know, CTFAR and the thought model in the book. And um, the reason why I love thought downloads is because when you get all those words on paper and you start to like circle the facts, like you realize how few there are. Like most of what we have in our life is perspective, paradigms, narratives, stories. Like they're not facts. And so when, when someone says a woman physician, you know, can or should do X or should or shouldn't do Y, or a male physician should, should or shouldn't do, you know, Z, like those are all just thoughts. Like they're just thoughts that people have. And, and I, I think you have to be careful about it to some extent, because 
there are times in life when people are speaking wisdom into our life that, you know, could serve us, but you have to put it through a filter, right? Like, is this something that would serve me? Like, is this wisdom that applies to me? Do I want to think that I can't be a mom and a surgeon knowing that there are a number of examples of women physicians that are amazing out there doing both of those things, you know, that, that chose to be a mom and chose to be a surgeon that you can, you can do both. Um, or do you want to listen to some, you know, person in you know their sixties, that's, you know, a male and hilariously, when I find this funny is usually it's a male physician. That's not a surgeon. <laughs> it'll, it'll be like, it'll be like some like, you know, male, like internal medicine doctor. And they're like, yeah, no, you can't be a surgeon and a mom. And it's like, you are neither of those things. <laughs> so what, what, what place do you have to give this person that advice? Like that is horrifically terrible advice. <laughs> and like, you have no perspective on it, right? Like you don't get to have a say in either of those. Yeah, the scientist in me like totally now wants to get a whole demographic analysis of the people that are saying these things out loud. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. I, I will say that, you know, I don't, I don't have this conversation because I work in academics still. And so I'm around medical students and residents all the time. And, and what I will tell them that is along these lines is that the person that's making the decision right now and the person that you're going to be in five, seven, 10 years is going to be a different person who wants different things. And so when you think through this decision, I'm not telling you what you will or won't be. That's up to you. But probably you should spend some time thinking about what your goals and ambitions might be five or 10 years from now. And if that aligns with the kind of career that you're choosing. Um, and I think that's true for everybody, regardless of your, your gender. Um, and because I didn't realize that I lucked into a field that is perfect for me, but I think a lot of people choose a field. And then looking back, they're like, this probably wasn't a good fit. Uh, and knowing themselves better later on, they realize why. Um, and, but in medicine, like unlike PAs and nurse practitioners, we can't change our specialty, you know, at the drop of a hat. Um, and so like we're, we're, we are entrenched. Like if, if you went into surgery and spent five years training plus fellowship, if you did that, like, it's not like you're going back and be like, yeah, I'm going to go back to family practice. Like you could, you could, that's a really long road to get to what you finally <laughs> wanted to do. And I'm not saying it, you know, if you're out there and you're doing that, good for you, but um, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's the hardest part about making that decision. Right. And, you know, I know you talked a lot about this, um, you know, journey over the destination. Um, and there's an, another, uh, good, good thing that people, you know, I think really need a little help with the, the whole idea of the arrival fallacy. Take us through a little bit about, uh, how you've worked with people who have like fallen into that trap. Yeah. So the first thing is realizing that you have, because it's a little bit, <laughs> it's a little bit like the matrix. Like when someone offers you the blue or red, I can't which, remember which pill it is, the blue or the red pill, right? But uh, like, you don't realize you're stuck in it. But for me, the arrival fallacy, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've succumbed to it like countless times and, and still do to some extent. But it's the idea that like, once you get there, you're going to be happy, right? So like you finish undergrad and you're like, oh, you know, medical school is gonna be so much better. I'm be working to become a doctor. And you're like, medical school kind of, you know, this is kind of hard, it's kind of sucks. Like I got a short white coat on, like I don't want a short white coat. I want a long white coat. And they become a doctor. You're like, oh, it's going to be so much better when I'm a resident because I'm a doctor. You're like, oh, residency is burning me out. But when I become an attending physician, and, and the, the joke that you and I talked about, you know, that you always said, like, the next rotation is going to be better. Like, like we have, we always have this language to say, like, the next thing, the next pinnacle, the next mountain that we climb is going to be the mountain that makes us happy. And then we get there and three or six months later, maybe a year later, we're like, oh, I'm not as happy as I thought I'd be. Right. And so that comes from focusing on, the destination. So it comes on focusing on where you're going to be and then getting there and realizing that the destination wasn't as cracked up as it was going to be. 
Gertrude Stein says, you know, there is no there there. I think that's a great way to put it. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, an arrival fallacy because you think that once you arrive, you'll be happy. And for me, there's two ways to deal with this. One is to put your arrival so far off in the future that you can never get there. So you make what Simon Sinek calls an infinite goal. And, uh, and basically that allows you to never arrive. The other way to do that is to, instead of focusing on the destination, to focus on the journey and to realize that that's actually when you're the happiest. So Mihai Csikszentmihalyi has this, this phrase called flow. It's being in a flow state, right? So, um, and anybody that's, you're a surgeon, so you, you probably do this all the time. Um, so when you're doing a procedure, like you're working around and everyone else in the operating room is like, you know, and, and I don't know what the longest procedure you do is, you know, you, you being a fantastic surgeon is probably like five minutes, but uh, what was the longest procedure you do? Oh, it was something like a sigmoid colectomy. Those could be like, you know, whether it was the adhesions and tough, you know, that, that may, I, I'll take it from my colleague who says, I don't like to do anything for more than four hours. So most things I do are under that. Okay. So let's say you're like four hours, you're like, you're, you know, belly full of adhesions, you're working through them. You're trying to get to what you, you know, are trying to see, you're trying to mobilize everything. Like for you, like you're in it, like you're engrossed in the act of like taking down taking down those adhesions and mobilizing everything you need to see in order to do the surgery mm-hmm. for everyone else in the room. They're like, you know, like what's taken, you know, like, I mean, this yes. it's been two hours, you know, like, you know, and they're talking to the circulator and like, Hey John, like, how's your weekend? You know, like having conversations about that because they're not in that flow state, but for you, time is flying because you're engrossed in your activity. The same thing happens for writers when they write the same thing happens for runners when they run. And so when you realize that actually getting there isn't what makes you happy, it's the process of being, it's the process of doing. And you instead focus on the journey and being in the moment because all of the literature out there will tell you that people are happiest when they are able to be present in the moment. You start realizing like, oh, maybe my, maybe my sights were set on the wrong thing. Maybe it wasn't the goal. Maybe it's just the journey of becoming that that is when I'm happiest. And so if you find that space, whether it's, you know, doing a colectomy or you're doing, you know, writing a book, um, that, that focus on the journey and realizing that the ups and downs, the struggles and the triumphs in the middle of the journey are what make everything worth it. Um, and you can make that transition. Um, you can also, you know, work towards recognizing when you're in the moment, right. And, and just enjoying it. Like, this is great. Like I'm, I'm, you know, arms deep in this thing that I love doing. Perfect. And the one thing that, uh, you know, I know that we can't really talk about all the things in the book, cause I'm looking at everything on here. It's like, I want to talk about this and, <laughs> and that, so the short answer is just get the book, but you know, if you're thinking about that, now that you finish your book, what is the one thing that you would want someone to take away from this book? Like if we read the whole thing first, you know, start to end, what is the one thing that you really want everyone to take away from this? I think that it would be that you're not broken and that you have the choice and the ability to have the life that you want. Um, that, that, that is not something outside of you that someone else externally controls. Like you're not, you're not an innocent bystander or someone watching the life that you're living. Like you have control over your life. So one that you're not broken, the system is broken. Um, and that impacts you, but you don't have to let the bitterness of that system consume you. You still have the ability to control your life and to, to have the life you want. Yes. And, you know, I think you summed it up best earlier when you said it's this and this. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's always two things. It can never be just one. 
<laughs> exactly. Well, good. Well, Dr. Turner, thank you so much for coming on and everyone just get the book. I mean, it's so fantastic. And it's really, I really appreciate you putting this out into the world and I can't wait to hear the next one. Before we go though, where can people find you? Yeah. So the easiest place is at the physicianphilosopher.com and, uh, and you can find me on there. And also this is a podcast, so you can find me at the physician philosopher podcast. It's a great place to, to hear more of my random ramblings. If you'd like to hear more of that. And, uh, and of course the book that you mentioned. And, um, and I also wanted to specifically mention that, you know, I'm a huge fan of coaching as a coach myself, but you are a coach as well. And having, you know, obviously written, written the book. Now I can say you wrote the book, uh, talking about, you know, burnout, that if you're burned out, find someone, find a coach. And I could not recommend, you know, Dr. Turner more highly. So go find him, get coached, get out of the misery that you're feeling. You know, there is a way, and, and he is an expert that can help you to do that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to go to bosssurgery.com and register for the free webinar, Stop Hating Clinic.